0: Good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. As you're opening to 1 Samuel 25, one of the things you'll notice right away is this is a lengthy chapter. It's all one episode, which is why we're handling it in a single sermon, but it's still quite long. So, in light of that, I thought it'd be helpful to give you a listening cue before we read the text. What should we be paying attention to as we read? Well, you'll notice even just by scanning the text, the chapter is made up primarily of speeches from one character to another. In other words, there's more talking here than there is doing. There's more talking than there is doing. That's significant. 1 Samuel 25 is carried along not by battles or conquests, but by speaking. Speaking. Particularly in relation to David. So, as we read the chapter, this is the question that we can be asking ourselves as we read. To whose voice will David listen? Lots of speaking back and forth. To whose voice will David listen? Will he listen to the voice of a fool? Or will he listen to the voice of a fool? of wisdom. So, let's see how this plays out in the chapter. You can follow along with me beginning in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through his inspired author. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. That man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David." When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers, and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about four hundred men went up after David, while two hundred remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. There was a, they were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is such a worthless fellow that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord." and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause." or for my Lord working salvation Himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, "'Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing.' The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we stand in need of Your grace today, and we stand confident that You will answer that need through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that since You have not failed to give us Your own Son, You will also give us with Him every good thing, everything that we need. We ask for grace now. We ask for discernment and wisdom to hear Your Word with ears of faith. Pray that You would keep me from error. Pray that You would grant Your people discernment, God, that we might be built up in the truth, and persevered in the faith until the last day when the Lord Jesus Himself returns. We pray in His name. Amen. To whose voice will David listen? The options before him really couldn't be more different. And surprisingly, they come from the same family. We meet this husband and wife right away in verses 2 and 3, and they are a study in contrasts. The husband is rich. That's actually the first thing we learn about him even before his name. He's rich. It seems that this man's possessions are what matter most to him. He's rich, but he's also a fool. His name is Nabal, which literally means fool. He's a living illustration of Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. It was David who wrote that psalm, and he very well could have been writing about this man Nabal. It's not just that Nabal is dull or stupid; it's that he's godless. That's what it means biblically to be a fool. Nabal lives without reference to God. His perception of reality begins and ends with himself. He has no use for God. He has no use for neighbor. He has no use for anything really other than his possessions. You see, that's what Nabal treasures the most. His riches. And that's precisely what makes him a fool. What Nabal should treasure, however, is not his riches, but his gem of a wife. If a man ever married up, it was this man. Abigail is everything her husband is not. Nabal's a fool. She's wise. He's wicked. She's good. He's greedy. She's generous. He's arrogant. She's humble. He's repulsive. She's beautiful. I mean, talk about a mismatched couple. Unequally yoked. They... The two could not be more different. And therein lies the issue for David. To whose voice will he listen? Whose words will determine David's response? Will it be the voice of Nabal the fool? Or the voice of Abigail the wise? That's the question of 1 Samuel 25. And that's also the question for us, friends. What David encounters here is common for the people of God. We know that David is unique to some degree, but what he encounters here is common to the people of God. It's the battle between foolishly following our own desires and humbly listening to wise counsel. Whatever culture or era you find yourself in, you'll encounter this same struggle. Foolishness or wisdom? Go my own way that feels so right or listen to the counsel of others who point me to the Lord and to His Word. Foolishness or wisdom? The question confronting David is also the question confronting us. To whose voice will we listen? Before we dive into the chapter, I do want to remind us of something important. We're going to talk a lot in this text about how God spared David from sin, but that by no means implies David was perfect. David's a fallen man living in a fallen world. If you had any doubt about that, the end of the chapter should clear that up for you. David takes multiple wives, which is certainly not in line with God's Word and His design for marriage. Why did David do this? Well, because he's a a sinful human being like us. So why did God keep using him? Because the Lord's promise runs on His grace, not our merit. David's not perfect. And that's why there's so much encouragement for us in his life. Because at the end of the day, the person whom David is pointing us to is not himself, but to our gracious God. As we look now to the text, you'll notice the passage follows a problem-solution pattern it's actually a very beautiful piece of writing, chapter 25. I wish we could spend all the time going into the intricacies and the connections. Just the way that it's written prompts worship. But perhaps simpler is better for our purposes. So it follows a problem solution pattern. You can see it very clearly. We encounter the problem in verses 1 to 13, we meet the solution in verses 14 to 35. Then we see the resolution to it all. In 36 to 44. Problem, solution, resolution. That's the pattern. And on that pattern, we'll build our message. Beginning, first of all, in verses 1 to 13, where we see the trouble foolishness creates. The trouble foolishness creates. We've already met Nabal the fool. But now we learn that his foolishness has him headed for some serious trouble. Notice verse 4. David hears Nabal is shearing his sheep. That might not sound very significant to us, but that's because we're not shepherds. Shearing sheep was a time for celebration. It was a party with plenty of food and plenty of drink to go around. In fact, that's why David makes his request in verse 4. He knows that of all the times in the year, right now, Nabal is flush with provisions. So he asks the man to share from some of his bounty. Now understand, friends, this is not a demand from David. The text actually stresses this quite clearly so that we see David hasn't crossed any lines. David's request is respectful. Notice verse 6. David tells his men to greet Nabal not with a threat, but with a blessing. He doesn't demand. He greets him respectfully. David's request is also reasonable. Notice the end of verse 8. David asks for whatever Nabal has at hand. He puts the decision in Nabal's court. Just give us whatever you think is best. It's reasonable. And most important of all, David's request is right. Notice verse 7. David informs Nabal that he and his men protected Nabal's shepherds in the wilderness. You see, Nabal doesn't know it yet, but David has actually had a hand in preparing this party. Nabal is feasting because David watched over his flocks in the wilderness. And that means David's request is not only respectful and reasonable, it's also rightfully deserved. Nabal disagrees. He denies David's request, but not with a simple no. He denies it in a way that reveals his foolish character. Point by point almost, Nabal insults David. He insults this man who has shown him such kindness. Nabal's refusal is derogatory. Notice verse 10. What does Nabal call David? The son of Jesse. Now that should sound familiar because that's Saul's favorite name for David. Son of Jesse. And Nabal uses it because he is Saul's mirror image. Saul's not present in the chapter physically, but his attitude is. Nabal and Saul are the same. They're mirror images of one another. They have the same kind of heart, a foolish one that derides the Lord's anointed. It's derogatory. Nabal's refusal is also accusatory. Again, notice verse 10. Nabal implies David is nothing more than a runaway rebel. You don't deserve any help, Nabal sneers. You deserve to be punished as a traitor, as a runaway, a rebel. He accuses David of wrong. But maybe most foolish of all, Nabal's refusal is selfish. Look at verse 11. Notice how often Nabal references himself. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give to men who come from I do not know where? It sounds like the conversation a three-year-old would have. Or maybe a 36-year-old like me. This man's whole world revolves around himself. And that's just it. Nabal is so blinded by himself, he can't see the way he's been cared for by another. It's all just me. Point by point, Nabal not only refuses David, he humiliates him. This man is a fool. And as a result, this man is in trouble. Notice verse 13. David's men report back, and David's response is chilling. Every man strap on his sword. It's so chilling because it sounds like Saul in David's mouth. He's gonna wipe Nabal out. David takes 400 men and sets out for Nabal's house 400 men to take care of one guy. There's only one reason you would take that many people, and it's vengeance. He's not just gonna get some food, he's gonna leave everyone dead. Nabal is in serious trouble. And he doesn't know it yet, but that trouble is due to his own foolishness. But that's not the end of the trouble, is it? As we end this first scene, it's not just Nabal who's in trouble, it's David too. At this moment, David is listening to Nabal's foolish voice. And as a result, David himself is steaming headlong towards sin. Remember, God's word is very clear on this point. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So David is in trouble. But what's even more alarming for David is that this moment of trouble follows on the heels of a spiritual high point. Did you catch that? It was when we read. Just one chapter earlier, chapter 24, what did David do? He humbly submitted himself to the very commandment he now seems intent on breaking. Remember, chapter 24. David had the opportunity to take vengeance on Saul, but he left matters in God's hands and he chose to walk by faith. But what is David doing now just one chapter later? About to break the very same commandment he just obeyed. Friends, I hope we perceive the warning God is giving us from David's life at this point. In the fight of faith, there's never a time when we can say, whew, man, I'm glad I won that battle. I'm glad that fight is over and I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's never true. In fact, some of our most vulnerable times spiritually come right after a high point. That's the warning from David's life. Temptation often follows triumph. We're most vulnerable after victories. Why is that? Why? Why is it that we're vulnerable after victories? Because we've all got a lot more of Nabal in us than we'd like to admit. Just look at David's life at this point. His trouble isn't really with Nabal. David's trouble is with his own heart. The foolishness David encounters in the world is provoking the foolishness that still resides in him. Friends, we're no different. Our trouble is not so much the fools out there. It's the fool in here. Inside my own heart. Even as believers we still have that old man, that old fool inside of us. And if we're not vigilant, that old fool comes out pretty quickly. Again, that's the exhortation here, brothers and sisters. No matter how many victories we've experienced, we never outgrow our need for the wisdom of God's Word. Even if you've obeyed the commandment a hundred times, you still need God's Word. You still need the wisdom of the Scriptures. Leading and guiding and directing. And so the question that I believe 1 Samuel 25 is putting before us here is are you faithfully walking in the wisdom of the Scriptures personally in your own life and corporately in the life of the church? Are you walking in that wisdom day by day? And I use that word walking on purpose because it it communicates habit, pattern, lifestyle? Not just do I know it, but do I walk in it? Day by day, are you putting God's wisdom before your eyes so that you might walk in it by faith? Or, like David, have you grown complacent, maybe even vulnerable in the afterglow of past spiritual triumphs? You can't live on yesterday's victories, friends. You can't live on yesterday's victories. Your flesh is far too cunning and your heart is far too prone to wander. Day by day, we need the wisdom of God's Word. Day by day, we need to walk in that wisdom. And it might not seem like much on any given day or any given moment, but over months and years, the added effect of a life grounded in God's wisdom will bear tremendous fruit. You can't live on yesterday's victories. Every day we need God's Word because our hearts are so prone to find trouble. As we continue on in the passage, we see the grace of God does not leave David to his foolishness. Oh, how thankful we should be that Abigail gets to David before David gets to Nabal. That's a triumph of grace, friends. That's a triumph of mercy. And from it, we're going to take our second truth here. The restraint wisdom provides. The restraint wisdom provides. In God's providence, one of Nabal's servants recognizes his master is a fool, and he decides to step in. Notice verse 14. He he tells Abigail, and he expects her to do something about it. And indeed, she does. Notice verse 18. Abigail takes decisive action. She gathers together what we might call a peace offering, and she sets out to intercept David. It's a dangerous mission, considering how angry David is. But mercifully, Abigail's wisdom proves to be more than capable of meeting that danger. Her speech that begins in verse 23 is a masterful piece of persuasion. If Nabal embodies Psalm 14.1, Abigail embodies Proverbs 16.22 that says good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it. In fact, that phrase good sense is the same word that's used to describe her as discerning. This woman is a fountain of life. And if David will listen to her, he will find life. With a deft touch, Abigail manages to acknowledge David has been wronged while simultaneously diffusing his anger over that wrong. Again, it's a masterful piece of persuasion. But what's most striking about Abigail's speech is not her rhetoric, but her theology. She weaves in so much truth about the Lord, but she does so with such wisdom. So in that sense, Abigail is like Hannah from the beginning of the book. These two women are master theologians, and they're showing us how to live according to God's word. She weaves in so much wisdom, and it's so compelling. Notice she doesn't lecture David, she doesn't scold him. Instead, she gently but clearly directs his attention away from Nabal and puts it back on the Lord. It's not her rhetoric that's impressive, it's her theology. Notice with me how she does this several distinct ways. First of all, Abigail highlights God's providence. She highlights God's providence. Listen to the wisdom of her words in verse 27. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So note what she has done. She has both convicted David and encouraged him she's convicted him by pointing out the fact that he was headed to sin but she's encouraged him in the fact that god has stopped him in that path it's both convicting and encouraging she shows him the truth but in a way that wisely steers him back to the path of godliness she highlights god's providence abigail also points to god's promise look at verse 28 And notice how Abigail uses a future promise to encourage present godliness. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Now that phrase, a sure house, is a reference to a dynasty. So Abigail anticipates God's promise to establish David's throne forever. She anticipates this coming promise that David's reign will never end. But it's not just an anticipation. It's also a spur to godliness. It's as if Abigail says to David, listen, you know God is raising you up. You know God will establish your throne forever. So on the strength of that promise, forgive the fool. On the strength of that promise, walk in godliness. Again, it's wisdom. She points to God's promise. Abigail also emphasizes God's protection. His providence, His promise, His protection. Notice verse 29. And listen to how Abigail reminds David that his life is in the Lord's hand. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. You'll notice verse 29 starts with the word if. Maybe a better way to translate that would be even though. She's not saying that there's a potential for David to have enemies. She's saying, I know you have enemies like Nabal, like Saul. I know there are enemies rising up all around you. But she also encourages David that those enemies can't touch him. His life is in the Lord's hands. But, here's the key. To drive that encouragement home, she then makes it very, very specific. Look at what she says. She says, God will cast away David's enemies as from a sling. A sling, friends. What would a sling make David think of in terms of his enemies? Goliath, the Philistine giant whom the Lord struck down. So Abigail is saying, if you doubt my words, then remember God's work. A sling. He'll strike them all down like he did Goliath. Walk in godliness. She's pleading with him. She's reminding him of God's protection. That's the wisdom of her counsel here. She acknowledges that David has enemies, but then she encourages him That those enemies are nothing. And she gives specific God-centered encouragement. That's the recipe for encouraging others, friends. Specific promises from God's Word that match the specific situation in which people find themselves. It's wise. She emphasizes God's protection. There's one more element to her speech we need to see. Abigail celebrates the value of godly character. The value of godly character. Notice verse 30. Listen to how Abigail reminds David that godliness is the best way to live. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for Himself. Friends, that's compelling. Abigail says to David very simply, godliness is better than vengeance. Walking by faith is better than giving in to sin. Godliness is safer because it doesn't bring guilt or shame. So why not put the sword down and walk in the path of godliness? You see what she's doing? Godliness is better. By the way, friends, is that how we encourage others to resist and turn from sin? Not just with negative commands, but with the positive exhortation that following God is better than giving in to the flesh? Is that how we encourage others? We should. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's much more effective against the flesh than saying you better not do that. Godliness is better than sin. That's what Abigail says to David. God's providence, God's promise, His protection, now godly character. This is what wisdom looks like in practice, friends. This is what it looks like to be wise. It's to counsel others to live in relationship to God. Beginning in verse 32, we get the strongest endorsement possible on Abigail's wisdom. Her words win David's heart. Her appeal wins out. And David is restrained from sin. Instead of lifting his hand in violence, David now lifts his voice in blessing. Verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to me this day. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. You see, David understands this wasn't a coincidence. This was divine intervention through the hands and words of a wise woman. It's divine intervention, divine wisdom breaking in against David's foolishness, restraining his desires and returning him to the path of godliness. Friends, we'll have more to say about David's response in just a moment, but for now, we need to pause and consider what we might learn from wise Abigail. Like I said just a moment ago, she follows in Hannah's footsteps from the beginning of the chapter. Her role in the book of 1 Samuel is to show us what it looks like to live in light of God's truth. So what could we learn from her? Well, there's many things that we could take away from her speech. Just this week I was reading an article that highlighted some of the practical aspects of persuasion from Abigail's speech. It was a fascinating article. And it... Was helpful. So there are many many things that we could take away from her example. It would be fruitful just to sit and work through her her speech and just say, what are the things that would be good to our soul? But perhaps the most important takeaway is, is simply this. The wisest way we can encourage others is by helping them see themselves and their situation in relationship to God. Let me say that again. The wisest way we can encourage others is by helping them see themselves and their situation in relationship to God. You see, that's biblical wisdom at its core. It's helping people live in relationship to God and to the world He has made. Fundamental to the Bible's worldview is that all of life is designed to be centered around God. From the work we do, to the families we nurture, to the witness we offer, all of life is meant to take its cues from God. Foolishness denies that connection. Remember Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness denies that connection, but wisdom promotes it. Wisdom encourages it. Wisdom comes into the fog of confusion and says, No, look at what God is doing. Look how God has made the world. So, if we want to be wise counselors, then we've got to follow Abigail's example and put life in its proper context in relationship to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's be those kinds of counselors, let's be those kinds of friends. I mean, just as you think back over your own life, isn't it true that the people who have proved the most helpful to you are the ones who have helped you to see God when you can't see Him? Isn't it true that the people who have done you the most good are the ones who have come in to the circumstances that are hard and faith-destroying, and they've shown you again the truth of God's Word? Aren't those the friends that you value? Aren't those the people that do good to your soul? That's been true in my life. Many of you have been that way for me. Let's be those kinds of counselors. Let's be those kinds of friends. Let's build that kind of wise, godly community in the midst of the church. But that requires that we are people who are pressing on to know the Lord ourselves. You can't give away what you don't have. You can't counsel others with a viewpoint that you don't share. So we must be people who are pressing on to know the Lord ourselves. You see, this is one of the great blessings of knowing God's Word. Not only does it do good to your soul, but it equips you to be a blessing to others as well. Your time spent in God's Word is not just about your own faith, but about the faith of others. As we know God through His Word, we're equipped and enabled to help other people see themselves in relationship to God. And then over the long haul in the life of a church, as you put down roots in the same church over decades and decades and decades, you're able to give wisdom to others and you receive from the wisdom of others as well. So that there's this wonderful life cycle of faith in the community of saints. Friends, let's build that here. That's not my job. That's not the elder's job. That's our job. Let's press on to know the Lord so that we might help each other see ourselves in relationship to God. That's wisdom, friends. That's wisdom. That's what Abigail gave to David, and by God's grace, may we be the same kind of wise counselors as well. I mentioned a moment ago we would have more to say about David's response, and that's where we're going to turn our attention here at the end. David has turned back from his quest for vengeance, but that leaves one issue hanging out there, what will happen to Nabal? Well, beginning in verse 36, we find the answer, and it's here that we see our final truth. The mercy providence extends. The mercy providence extends. To absolutely no one's surprise, Abigail returns home to find her husband drunk and partying like a king. Partying like a king. Like Saul, in other words. Here's a man who was hours from death and he doesn't even know it and he likely wouldn't even care. Nabal has no time for self-reflection. He just wants to keep living the good life. He's a fool. Abigail waits till the morning to talk to her husband wisely. No sense in talking to him while he's drunk. But when the morning does come, so does Nabal's end. Abigail tells him how close he came to losing everything, including his life. Notice what the text says, verse 37. Nabal's heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Friends, I take this to be a somewhat ironic display of God's judgment. Nabal is hard-hearted, and he loves his stuff more than anything else. So when he hears how close he came to losing all his stuff, he becomes like his foolish heart, hard, dead, lifeless. That's not the very end for Nabal. Notice the brief but poignant statement in verse 38. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Verse 38 is significant for what it does not say. It does not say David struck Nabal. It says the Lord struck Nabal. That's mercy, friends. Not to Nabal, who foolishly lived without reference to God, but to David. In His providence, God has shown David incredible mercy. He has kept David from sin. And that's why David responds in verse 39 with praise. Listen again to David's confession. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Now, don't, let's not make a mistake here. David does not praise God for Nabal's death. He praises God for the Lord's justice and mercy. There's a difference. He's not praising him for Nabal's death. Praising God for his own justice and mercy. With justice, God has dealt with David's foolish enemy. And with mercy, God has restrained David from becoming a fool in the process. You know, friends, Nabal's demise and David's response are actually very instructive to us. Nabal's demise and David's response are speaking two messages. God's word is saying something here at the end. He's saying something to both the unbeliever and to the believer. To the unbeliever, Nabal's demise is saying very clearly, eventually the party runs out. Eventually, foolishness catches up with you. And the price it demands at the end is absolutely more than you want to pay. Friend, are you living as though this life is all that matters? Do you go through your days without giving God much thought? Focusing instead on how much you can get and how you can keep it? If so, then the Bible would say to you this morning, not me, don't listen to me. Listen to the Bible. The Bible would say to you, that's a dangerous way to live. The Bible calls that kind of life not only foolish, but sinful. And Nabal's life is a warning not to keep going that way. So won't you turn from sin and from foolishness today? Nabal's end does not have to be your end. The good news of the Bible is that God has made a way for fools like us to be saved. To be spared from the judgment our sin deserves. God has made a way. And that way is a cross. And on that cross, the Son of God, the One whom the Scriptures call the very wisdom of God, that Son died paying the penalty our sins so justly deserved. But He did not stay dead. On the third day, the Lord Jesus rose again, proving once and for all that salvation has been accomplished for all who trust in His name. Won't you trust Him this morning? Turn from sin. If you don't know Christ, this is what Nabal's demise is saying to you. Turn from sin and look to the only One who can save. The wisdom of God who was made sin on behalf of His people. Trust Him. If you are trusting in Christ today, then there's also instruction here for you from David's response. To the believer, David's response is saying, marvel at the number of times God's mercy has kept you from yourself. Marvel at the number of times God's mercy has kept you from yourself Ponder with renewed praise that the same providence that restrained David is working now on your behalf, sparing you from sin, and leading you back time and time again to know and trust the Lord. Brothers and sisters, marvel at that mercy. We don't even know all the ways our merciful God has spared us from doing what we were determined to do. Many times, what we would call a roadblock, God calls mercy. What we would call a hindrance, God calls a kindness. We should worship God for this, brothers and sisters. We should marvel at His mercy and ponder anew all the ways God has shepherded us away from ourselves and into the paths of His righteousness. Do you worship Him for that, friends? Do you take time to thank Him and praise Him, not just for the ways you can observe, but for the ones you've never even seen? His mercies are innumerable. And many times, the sweetest mercies are the ones that keep us from ourselves. David's not perfect. He's not perfect. He's given to anger. He can walk in foolishness just as much as Nabal. He is given, even at times, to sin. David's not perfect. He's going to be the king, but he's an imperfect king. Mercifully, however, God's kingdom does not rest on this imperfect king. God's kingdom rests on one who is greater than David. A perfect king who never failed, who never strayed into foolishness. A faithful shepherd who never needed to be corrected a powerful Savior who never once even gave thought to the fact that He might take vengeance against His enemies. God's kingdom rests on that King, friends. And for that reason, we have unshakable hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that You did not leave fools like us in our sin. Thank you that you spared us God from what we surely wanted to do on our own which is ruin our lives. Despise your name and gladly rush headlong into hell. We praise you God for your mercy that saves fools like us. We praise you even now for your mercy that's restraining us from things we don't even know that you're doing. You are a merciful God. We give You thanks. We give You praise. Make us quick to trust You and quick to speak of Your mercies in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.